Success, we are on. Welcome to the From Mess to Success podcast, a podcast where we discover, explore and unpick people's From Mess to Success stories. I'm your host, Justin, founder of From Mess to Success Coaching, author of You're Fired, You're Hired. And I'm on a mission to share stories from people who have moved from mess to success, transforming their lives along the way. And today we are joined by a very special guest, ex-professional footballer, alcohol-free advocate, coach, speaker, author, dad, husband and all-round great guy, Fraser Franks. Fraser, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. What an intro. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, cheers, mate. How's it all going? It's going well. Monday morning, I have to say we started with a brilliant bit of box breathing, which has calmed me down, relaxed me, put me in the room. So now we're looking forward to chatting to you, mate. Brilliant, mate. Good stuff. It's kind of weird because when I introduce uh, people to the show, I automatically, and in your case, um, I want to list ex-professional footballer at the top, coach, author, speaker, all the sort of glamorous stuff. And um, and I'm thinking, why does why does dad, husband, um, why does that come so far down the list? You know, why, why shouldn't that be at the top? Yeah, and it's it's a really fascinating one for me because my identity has always been wrapped up into that professional footballer. Um, didn't know it at the time, but it's something I do actually do a lot of work with at the minute and uh, within professional sport it is the identity of a lot of players see themselves as a footballer first and almost a human being second and when I came away from it I really struggled with that how do I introduce myself and um, what do I say that I do an Instagram bio for me honestly it is something that I play around with constantly because I still not got it figured out um, I do have husband, dad in there, but I think I have just changed it because I'm, <laughs> I'm raising money for Alcohol Change UK, so I didn't have enough, <laughs> enough. but it's interesting that those two were the ones that came out. Um, but no, that is, dad is my number one job, my number one priority, so that should be top of my list, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, and there's a lot well unpicked there, but it's, yeah, it's really interesting with those Instagram bios and, um when I sort of think about my own journey, we like to put ourselves in these in these boxes, don't we? And um, when I took a, a career break, which we're looking at just over a year now, um, and people ask me, you know, what I'm what I'm doing, I was so adamant for such a long time on saying I'm on a career break. I'm on a career break. Um, where now I'm sort of changing that narrative and coming out of that box, you know, and talking about, oh, I'm, I'm doing this and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing that without that sort of like, oh, it has to be that way, you know, and I, mm. think, there's, I think there's sort of... Um, sort of a little bit of authenticity and a sort of bit of bit of vulnerability in that which is which is quite powerful do you know what i mean Mm, for sure and then and then those labels as well are are things that we get attached to whether it's like coach speaker and i've got i've deliberately got author in there i've never published a book i've never written a book but it's something i'm trying to do at the minute so sometimes i feel like it can work in your favor i feel like if i write i'm putting author in there because that's going to remind me and keep me accountable that I do want to be an author. So I've almost deliberately tried to attach that to my bio. I'm writing, I'm not published, but I I understand that now. And I I also understand why some people might put sober in their Instagram account or whatever it might be, 
because they want it to be a big part of their identity. Um, for me, I'm not sure that I do want that to be everything about me, but there's nothing wrong with it. I'm, I'm a big advocate, alcohol-free advocate, want to work in this industry, want to help as many people as I can. But it's an interesting debate that I think the, the labels and the, the tags and the things that we cling on to sometimes, whether it's good or bad. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And thanks for clarity on the author, because uh, that stops me asking, what, where, where's your book? Where, where can we find it? Because, uh, yeah. Um, okay, so just for transparency for the listener, um, we we sort of don't know each other that well. Um, our, we've sort of been connected through um, the Dry app, which is um, sort of tactical taking a break from alcohol or a hundred percent alcohol free or thinking a sober curious app that's that's launching in in six i think it's about six days now or something which sounds pretty exciting right yeah it does there's there's some good people involved in it um i'm sure we'll come on to andy ramage but he's been a you know a big character in my journey so far someone that i meet up with regularly someone that's become a bit of a mentor for me um similar backgrounds both grew up sort of wanting to be footballers and both became professional footballers, both went down a similar journey with alcohol and being in that grey area, maybe slightly looking over the edge, um, which which Andy's described as before. Um, but someone I've really resonated with, someone that's got so much time for so many people and I don't know how he fits in everything that he does into a day, but yeah, what a guy. Yeah, what what a guy, and obviously he's he's been um, he's been a massive part of of, of my journey as well. And uh, I think actually, I've, yeah, I've just realised the the football connection between you two. But I think I think you scored a few more goals than him, didn't you? <laughs> I, I think he, he always talks about that one that he scored. I think he did, didn't he? For Jim. yeah, yeah. That was, um, was like... I didn't get to I didn't get too many more, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> but yeah, quite a few more than than Andy, I think. I think he was like a sort of Gary Lineker tapping, wasn't it? About four yards away from the uh, goal line or something. Yeah, he does. He <laughs> underplays. He, you know, he underplays his professional career. I think at times, um, but I think anyone at any level that makes it to, you know, to, to play in the football league, it takes some, takes some, uh, you know, some hard work and determination to get there as well as a you know a good skill set. So he does underplay it at times, but yeah, so do I, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think that's um I think that's a real good point for us to um to sort of rewind the clock and really go back to um to this time when you're about nine years old and this desire to become become a footballer. And I think, you know, when I think about that sort of my um you know my question is really was it a stereotypical journey for you you know because you i think from people who's like myself who's who's you know not not a sports person or or, or professional athlete or went on to be a professional footballer or anything is we've always got this perception that you you know you 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 pick up this ball from an early age and that's all you think about and you know you then go on this this journey from that sort of age was that the journey for you or is there a bit of uh, was there any sort of uh, curveballs in that journey there were definitely plenty of curveballs uh, within it um but i think originally starting it was that you know every, every picture that i can see from from my childhood I've pretty much got a football kit or a football in my hand. Um, it was just the thing that I fell in love with doing for literally from the age of three or four years old. Um, 
and I was I talked to my mum about this quite regularly but I was the easiest kid ever to keep occupied because all we had to do was give me a football and I'll go and do what I want um, I've got a brother that's two years younger than me so literally all my childhood memories are me and him kicking the ball about me and him on the estate with all the other kids um, and just yeah developing a real passion but a clear almost like a clear purpose and goal from as early as I can remember so when you when you do things in school, it says, what do you want to be when you're older? I had an answer top of my head straight away, you know, ever since I can remember. And it almost confused me a little bit where other people in my class didn't really know, even at the age of, you know, 15, 16, when we're getting a bit older, a lot of them still had no idea what they wanted to be. And I was like, how can you not know? I was just like obsessed. And I was like, that's exactly what I want to be. But I also had in the back of my head that we're constantly told of, you know, the one in how many that make it, um, the chances are quite slim. And I didn't have a great sense of self-confidence, um, but I always had something in me that I thought, you know what, I do feel like I will be, you know, the one that comes through or, you know, I do think maybe it won't be in the Premier League, but my whole goal was I want to make a career out of this and I want to be, you know, a professional footballer. Yeah. Yeah, and that's obviously what you're saying is ingrained from that, those very, uh, well, the earliest of formulative years imaginable. So you join Chelsea Youth Academy or Chelsea Academy, it's all nine years old, right? Yeah. Now, what sort of around that time are you, you know, around that time, obviously, you then sort of move forward into, into teenage years. What is it that is it talent or is it belief or at that age or is it a bit of both or what, what sort of stands out to sort of make that grade? Um, for, you have to have an, an element of talent for sure. Um, you know, an element of technical ability. And But if you look at the players that come through and make it, they are the ones with the, the good attitude, the ones that work hard, the ones that are able to deal with adversity and setbacks. There were players that were so so much more talented than I was but never made a career as a professional um, maybe they couldn't deal with when things went wrong or maybe they thought their talent would take them all the way and didn't need to work hard but I was probably one of the least talented um, at Chelsea for a long long time so I was always quite insecure about that I was one of the slowest every single year probably one of the weakest one of the smallest I didn't have a growth spurt until quite late so I always felt like I was just about doing enough to keep myself there. I was never excelling. I was never number one or top of the pile. Um, but what I did do was work harder than, mm-hmm. well, not harder than everyone, but I prided myself on my attitude and my hard work and wanting to listen, wanting to learn. And I feel like that's how I made a career for myself. I obviously had a little bit of, you know, a little bit of talent and that does take you, you know, so far, but my whole career was based on hard work, good attitude, being determined, bounce, being able to bounce back from setbacks, being able to deal with difficult situations um, where other people with much more talent than I did maybe struggle with that side of the game, I think. Yeah. And those setbacks, what sort of, is there any setbacks that kind of stand out really before turning pro, you know, in those sort of formulative 13, 14, 15 years. I mean, I'm imagining that's quite tough. Yeah, even, you know, you're dealing with little ones every single time that you're there, whether you're 
whether you're a substitute, whether you've had a bad training session, whether you've had a, there might be a comment from a coach that really sticks in your head. Um, you might get injured. You might not get a contract. So at the age of just before I turned 16, I got released. Um, so that's when the club call you in and say, look, you know, you've been here for seven or eight years now, but we don't see you breaking through to the first team. Um, so you, we're, we're going to let you go. And a lot of people, um, you know, when that does happen to them, do find it really difficult to, to then bounce back or go to another club and, and try and prove themselves somewhere else. Or they're quite, they're quite happy to sit back and wait for the phone to ring. They have a little bit of an ego attack, right? I've been at Chelsea, one of the top clubs, so someone will, you know, someone will call me, someone will bring me in. Whereas I was, again, this is probably where I pride myself. I remember when I got released, literally getting every single email address from every club up and down the country and personally emailing every single club, phoning as many people as I could, trying to get myself a trial somewhere where a lot of others maybe thought they were too good to be doing that. Um, but I, I didn't I didn't have that in my head. I was like, right, it's not worked out at Chelsea. Let me try and, you know, find the next place where I can hopefully prove myself and, and carry on this journey to be to become a pro. Yeah, and I think that sort of dovetails back to what you're saying, that that belief part, that sort of hard work, you know, that hard work part, that sort of drive that you may have to, you just need to do more than than others. And I've, I think throughout my career, obviously completely different. I've, um, whether it's from, you know, childhood or other factors it's just that that sort of a feeling or that need that you've got to you just need to do more you know there's mm. you just need to do more and I can relate to that because I think um you know I, I can't pinpoint anything that I'm really really naturally talented on but I can I can relate to that sort of hard work and, and belief and I'm sure you know there's a few players that stand out um, along that sort of time that just you you must have looked at and it's just pure talent pure mm. talent right anyone that yeah. stands out uh, within that um, I'm trying to th I can think of the, the one that popped into my head just before you said the, the other side of it was uh, someone that had a similar journey to me but he's called Andy King so he got released at the same age so 15 16 um natural natural talent yeah yeah you know he was a good player but was nowhere near some of the others nowhere near he got released at 15 um a lot of the others went on to to get contracts at Chelsea until they were maybe 18 19 20 he then signed for Leicester but pure hard work dedication application signed for Leicester when they were in league 1 ends up staying there, making a career for himself. He won the Premier League um, in that Leicester side. And for a kid that was, uh, you know, physically not, not unbelievable, not unbelievable talent, but ended up making a career where he won the Premier League, is, is yeah. just blew my mind. Um, and if you, if you took him at that age and some of the other boys in the group with that natural talent, you go, well, these are obviously the ones that are going to go on and win the Premier League. He's not. But it, it shows you that there's an old saying that, hard work beats uh, beats talent if talent doesn't work hard and I've just seen it so often um, and there's a real pattern of that but you do get the odd you know anomaly I remember I remember people talking about Joe Cole when he came through as a kid that literally played on the playground 
and could do exactly what he did on playground in a game. And I listened to him on a podcast not long ago and with Harry Redknapp and they were saying, you know, you could tell from the age of 10 or 11 that this kid was going to, going to go on to sort of be something special. You do get a few of them. In my time at Chelsea, we actually didn't have many of them that came through. A lot of the ones that came came through were probably a little bit later on um, from foreign countries that started coming in. And there was a lot of money that got invested into Chelsea at that time. Um, but I do like those stories of, you know, the, the people like Andy King that just just showed how, how just how far you can actually go by working hard. And he, yeah. he must be 34, 35 now and he's still playing. He's in at yeah. Bristol City in the championship and and has had a, a hell of a career. So, yeah, he's one that stands out for me. Yeah, it's super interesting. And all, I think, um, you know, one of the things I saw recently from, from, from uh, Tony Robbins was... Um, someone asked him, what's the one thing that you see most in in champions or, the, you know, the, the elite performers or best successful business entrepreneurs? And, and he said perseverance. He just said the one thing that differentiates any, you know, a lot of people from from real success is just this level of, of, of perseverance, which perseverance, you know, under that umbrella comes or what we're saying, you know, that, mm. that sort of little bit of hard work, that relentlessness, that ability to sort of push through and, and, and carry on, you know, and that seems to be sort of really, really powerful. Mm. It's interesting when you talk to, because I've been with a lot of my old teammates this weekend at, at one of their weddings and some of the, they remember things that sometimes you forget, just like little moments. And they were talking about, because when I went to Brentford, which was my next club after Chelsea, um, I was the only one that came through and got a professional contract out of, you know, the 18 that were in our youth team. And they just remembered stuff. They were like, you loved football more than we did. Like you knew every single player, you, you know, you didn't go out, you did, you read the right stuff. And um, one of them, he, he said to me the other day, he's like, I just remember you coming around the house with a massive two litre bottle of water every single time and getting on the floor and stretching. And he was like, we didn't do that. Or we didn't think of that. Or when we went to, Nando's or something you would get something completely different you wouldn't have a coke or a burger or and I don't really remember that but when someone um highlights it to you so oh yeah I did I did used to do that and I did maybe used to do a few things that others maybe didn't want to do um but just really subtle things but I was that you know that driven obsessed I got called busy all the time because I was a bit of a you know not a teacher's pet but I wanted to listen I wanted to learn so I wanted to please my coaches as well. And you talked, you touched on childhood and childhood traumas and stuff like that. There's a lot that feeds into that people pleasing and wanting, wanting people to like me. And there was definitely elements of that in my football career as well. Yeah. Which I think is natural at some, at some point, isn't it? So you, so you turn pro around what age? Uh, 17. For Brentford. Brentford. Yeah. For Brentford. Okay. And what, what was that moment like? It was amazing, yeah, um, because because I signed for Brentford um, and they weren't the Brentford that you see today. They weren't yeah, really. Yeah. It makes my career look a much better, much better than it was to say I got a pro at Brentford, but they were in um, they were in League One at the time. Um, but I went there from Chelsea, and Chelsea had all these unbelievable facilities and the glitz and the glamour of Brentford, but had zero. Um, but I actually quite liked it, and I felt like I was one of the better players at Brentford, so I sort of found my level. Whereas at Chelsea, I was always sort of at the back of the pile, um, clinging on. 
Um, I went to Brentford and I was like, actually, I'm one of the better players here. So it gave me a bit of a, a boost. But um, yeah, in my first sort of couple of years there, I, or when I was 16, I, I actually struggled to get into the side in the youth team, um, sort of in and out. Um, some of the older boys were getting more of a chance. Um, but then I, I started to develop and, and become a much better player. Um, and yeah, when I was 17, got called up with the first team, um, started to sort of feature on the bench. Um, and yeah, then then got my got my professional contract and and uh, got into that first team, but never really made an impact in the first team. Um, so it was difficult. I was a young sort of skinny defender, and we had a lot of older, experienced sort of 33, 34 big lads that were in my position. And I just think the manager thought it was a bit of a risk to put me in there at such a young age. So although I got a, pro- a professional contract there, I was only there for you know, from the age of 16 to 19 um, and didn't, you know, didn't feature for the first team, you know, like I would have hoped to. Yeah. Okay. So, and at this time, um, what, 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 you know, obviously when, when doing some research around 17 years old, do you start sort of, there's some society triggers and, you know, alcohol starts to then sort of lifestyle alcohol start to come into the picture i think i um in one of your comments it was never never something that you had thought about up until sort of you know this point in your life so was there sort of a correlation between becoming professional you know you've got obviously the you're feeling good about becoming a pro there's obviously some money around there's a career happening but also at the same time you're there's a society trigger where obviously you're coming up to the legal age of drinking as well how does that how does that all sort of start um it started with like a i remember from as and i said a real vivid memory and i must have been about seven years old of saying that i'll never ever drink um like remember i remember who i was with remember where I was at a caravan site in the, in the summer, just looking at people drinking and I'd had a dad that drank quite a lot and, you know, my mum and him separated and we, we moved out of the house and stuff, but just looking at people going, I never want to drink. Like, and I remember my cousin who I was with going, I think I'll have a beer when I'm older. And I was like, oh, what's wrong with you? Like it stinks. It looks horrible. Look what it does to people. So I remember having that in my head and um, was never once tempted to, to, have, to, to even try it. So kids in school are drinking at 14, 15 or going to the park or parties, no interest in that for me. Um, that on top of the fact that I was training at Chelsea three or four days a week and weekends I game. So I didn't have the time to do it either. Um, but it just never wanted to never, I knew that it didn't fit with what I wanted to do in life. Um, but it was, I went to an all boys school. I was always in an all male environment at, at football. So honestly, I'd, I had no experience even talking to girls then you start going out at parties when you're 16 17 and this is with my my teammates at Brentford I just felt awkward I felt like and you looking back like you would like you're getting chucked into these situations that you've never been in before I've never gone to parties or anything before never had girls in school that you just conversate with um didn't go on dates or anything like that and all my mates would then probably feeling similar to how I was if I'm honest but they would have a drink then they could go and dance or go and chat up a girl or be a bit silly whatever it was and I still felt a bit wooden in the corner and when I did talk to someone I felt a little bit stiff or yeah. they were maybe they may be getting tipsy and you're stone cold sober I hate that saying but <laughs> you are yeah. um so I was like I still went out sober um and as I said my mates were 
were drinking and again they look back and go oh I remember when you were you know the sober one or even when I was 17 the one that was driving but it just got to a point where I was like I'm fed up of feeling like the boring one or the awkward one stood here and how comes they can all go and have a good time and then they on Monday morning they can still train really well so I remember just having a drink um and it did give me that confidence it was literally like taking a tablet and going oh actually I can be this person now be a bit more of an extrovert or dance or actually when I speak to someone now it's a bit smoother or you think it is in your head because you you don't really know so that was a pattern really and I associated all my confidence with having a drink so if I went out and I was sober it's like right I won't dance I won't really speak to anyone tonight but if I'm drinking yeah I'll go and have a good time so it started to maybe plant that seed in my head that you know I could only have a good time if I had a drink yeah and you mentioned sort of um you know, a complicated relationship with alcohol. Is, did that start at this moment or did that come sort of late later on? There was just, there was just a lot of guilt associated with it and like that big, like massive sense of shame um, because I'd done that vow and I knew it wasn't good for my performance. I remember the first time I had a drink, I got up the next morning really early, put a bin bag on and went for a run. So I was like, right, let me sweat this out. You know, I'm never doing that again. And really sort of punishing myself and being harsh on myself where I'd probably had a few Smyrna vices or something, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, like no one else was doing what I was doing, but it was. It, I think that was a start of a bit of a, a complicated attachment with it. Maybe it was stuff, you know, that had gone in the past that I didn't like about alcohol. Maybe it was, I know that this isn't good for my football career. You used to always get coaches going, oh, you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't do this. So I knew that there was a lot more in my head associated with alcohol than maybe the normal lad that drinks at 16 or 17 um but I never went overboard um when I was younger it was just like a bit of a social confidence it was only ever be maybe one or two weekends of the month um you know after a game on a Saturday night never during the week never at home so it wasn't until maybe mid-20s that I started to drink a little bit more <clears throat> but even then it, you know you look at it and go it wasn't excessive all the time so but it probably was a bit of a, a complicated relationship with alcohol, for sure. Yeah, I think um, what's interesting is that getting up and sort of putting a bin bag on and, and then, you know, going for the run, it's almost like there's a bit of there's a bit of guilt in there, isn't there? There's a bit of sort of almost like um, a bit of shame in there that you know it's not right. So you've got to quickly do something when you wake up in the morning. Do you know what I mean? It's that... Mm. That's the where I think that that relationship piece piece comes in because the complicated relationship piece comes in because you're not content with what you've done. If you're content, you're just like, oh, I had a few drinks last night, it's all good, yeah. I'm going training. <clears throat> but the fact you've got to try and do something to sort of quickly sweep that under the carpet, it's mm. almost like I think that's where those those elements come in, that little bit of, oh, you know, it's those that little niggling voice in your head saying, yeah. what have you done? You, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I really didn't want to drink. I really didn't. I hated everything about it, the way it made me feel the next day and that kind of thing the only thing I wanted was what it gave me. I wanted the confidence. I wanted to be able to dance. I wanted to be able to talk to people. Um, that's all I wanted. I didn't want to drink. I just wanted that. And I felt that alcohol was the only thing that could give me that or could get me in that state at that point in time. Yeah. 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 Super, super interesting. So 
Okay, so you're then sort of going through, um, you're going through the motions of, of a career which, which then last, um, last around 13 years, if, if, if I've got that right. I think, um, obviously I'm assuming that like, the alcohol thing never got to any sort of worrying stage. It was your, always this nagging feeling or always this sort of, you know, in, in, you know, I mean, you're doing what the society deems as normal, right? You, you potentially have had a good game on a Saturday. You've, you've won, you're having a couple of beers to unwind in, in, in the evening. It sounds natural, right? Yeah, that, that probably. So there was one point where I was 23, I'd have been now. Um, and I was always known for my professionalism and training hard and eating the right stuff and not really going out as much as other people. But I had this one game, um, I was playing for Luton Town, so it's probably the biggest club that I played for, um, that big supporter base. Um, and we had a game, and if we won it, and it was a big TV game, then we won the league. And we were playing a team that were near the bottom of the league, um, and we were expected to to walk over and basically it was an early kickoff. It was like a sunny day. There was a big party planned for afterwards, big parade. Like all my family were there, teammates, family were there. And I hadn't had the best of games the week before. And I was still sort of playing in my mind, but I was quite low in confidence. Um, and went into this game thinking, just please have a good game. Let's win this league today. And then, you know, everyone has this big party. Um, and I went into it and from the, literally from the first minute, uh, my man scored from a corner. So everyone sort of blamed me. The, cr- the crowd went quiet. Right. Like a, I think we had a sellout that day. So it was about 12,000. Um, really loud. And it went silent after a minute. And it was my fault. And we ended up losing the game 4-3, uh, I think it was. And literally every single goal was near enough my fault. It was just no. one of those days. No. Honestly, one of those days where everything went wrong and it was on TV and everyone was there with this big expectation. So we, we lost the game and that feeling then of letting everyone down and, you know, all my family being there, big party that was there afterwards and like, I'm responsible. I, I really felt almost single-handedly responsible for it all. I've never wanted the ground to just to swallow me up as much. Um, I remember the manager coming out in the press and, not blaming me, but almost putting it on me a little bit, which I got a bit of abuse on social media. Um, I remember my family being in the car park and I literally put my hood up and walked straight past and was like, I can't speak to you now. Um, got in my car. Um, I remember teammates sort of trying to put their arm around me, but I was like, all their families have turned up for this big day as well and I've let them down. And I remember going home and I lived in a flat on my own and it's the one time with alcohol I drove to a, an off-licence, got as much as I could, went home. I was like, right, tonight I'm drinking until I black out, basically. And I was drinking to forget. And that's the only time, or that was the first time, that I'd done that I'd drunk in a different way. I'd only ever drunk for confidence and to have a good time. But this was drinking to to escape, to get away from what I was feeling. Um, and that was, that was probably the... I'd done that a couple of times. Maybe if there was something that had gone wrong with my family or something that I weren't happy with, I'd right, associate that with a drink a little bit. If I'm struggling, right, a drink will take it away. Um, so probably around, around the age of about 23, that crept in. Not a lot, maybe once in, once in a blue moon, but I remember that day specifically. Um, it was probably the start of a, a slightly different uh, relationship with alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think the fact that you're aware, aware of it or maybe that awareness at the time 
um, it's probably quite I, I, I would say it's quite powerful and quite a good thing as opposed to not being aware of it so it starts to become the the norm you know mm. so i think that's uh, i think that's quite powerful that you're aware of it and you're saying ah oh, do you know what you know mm, am i sort of using alcohol to get through a get through a situation which when i look at people that's gone through you know um gone on to alcohol free journeys you know some of them have these colossal pivotal moments but for others it just is that feeling of oh actually i started to use alcohol to get me through x or y situation for you it was like in the early days a positive experience like oh yeah i want a bit of confidence i want to dance and then actually it can quite easily become oh no i needed it to get through that 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 situation so if, like for me um it was always, you know, using alcohol to get through, more so in, in the workplace to get through like a, you know, an event or a, you know, a corporate weekend away or any sort of, you know, um, you know, a, a big day within business where we're all going out at night. You're, I'm, you know, I'm using alcohol really to get me through that, that sort of, that, 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 that night, that feeling, that sort of, whether it's stress of being in, in, in that environment, you know, and the two probably co correlate, you know, it's that feeling of, oh, I don't feel great, but I'm going to, so I'm going to use alcohol in, in that way. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I relate to that massively. Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, in terms of um, high performance, I mean, you know, I know this is really talked about a lot and, and people's sort of definition of high performance, especially on the on the high performance podcast. And, um, I, you know, and I'm, I'm really intrigued always by that sort of opening opening line and how people define what is high performance. I think throughout your career, is there you know is does that definition change um you know because i always think that if i was asked that question at different times of my career and ages i would be given different answers yeah. it really depends on how big the ego is or what age i'm at or if i'm if i'm winning if i'm not winning you know yeah. so did, did you, you know just do, do, do you think you had a definition throughout these kind of years um, I, I know for a fact that if you asked me when I was playing, I'd have solely focused on high performance within football, and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought it existed in, in any other walk of life. But I now know that you know, and I've listened to a lot of those podcasts, and I find it fascinating. And my definition of probably success has massively changed over the last few years, um, because yes, it might be amazing to be the number one athlete in the world or the number one footballer in the world but if that come if that for me if it comes at the cost of your family and your relationships and your well-being is it is it really worth it is it really success mm -hmm. and i've i have there's probably a little battle that i go through sometimes um but i listened to ronnie o'sullivan on a podcast the other day saying for him to get to number one in the world he knows it takes him to some dark places he knows he has to do he has to do things that are unhealthy and he has to maybe cut people out and his, his lifestyle changes and he doesn't like the way his head, you know, it messes with his head. And now he says, actually success for me is if I take a, a foot off a little bit and I finish fifth, but I've got a good life and happy relationships and I'm happy in my own head, then that's success for me. And I've probably, I've probably gone towards that a little bit now where there isn't this relentless drive to be number one. It's yes, of course I want to be, 
as successful as I can in a career, but that doesn't come at the cost of, of, you know, being the best dad that I can be. So I just think for me, it's consistently being your best and being present is a, is a big one. I think, you know, when you're playing with your kids, actually playing with your kids and not being on your phone and, you know, half being there. So I think consistently showing up, being your best and being present is probably my, my definition of it. Yeah, totally. I'm totally, totally agree and, and, and totally aligned. And, you know, I think um, one of my, I think for me, um, just sort of digressing is one of the, the alcohol-free benefits, which we're going to talk about, which um, is that time I have with my kids and that ability to be present, um, you know, especially when we're at key moments like meal times or holidays and stuff like that. And when I'm completely present and engrossed in those really good conversations, I think that's I start to then think about well this is this is high performance or, or this is this is what success looks like. But it's on another side of the coin I also struggle with it because I've made this sort of change of career and this new direction direction so you then start to go well you know um what does my legacy look like i thought it was going to look like this i thought high performance was going to look like that but but does it so it's kind of all, all kind of a bit conflicting sometimes isn't it i think it's uh we could unpick that for hours yeah and i think because it's a, it's a question that they ask quite a lot on the high performance podcast about legacy and i find those answers really interesting um you know, some people, it means a great deal to them. Some people, it's like, I, I don't care. I really don't care. And I'm probably in that side. It's like, let, you know, do what you can do and be the best person that you can be. And then if that means that when you're gone, people talk about you in a certain way or you can you can leave something behind that, that helps other people, then brilliant. But there's no point worrying about it because you're not here. And... Yeah, that's probably the way that I go down. You know, there, there are certain legacies that you can leave. You know, if you if you start a brilliant charity and you're helping people beyond your years, then that's maybe slightly different. But I think a lot of people think, oh, I really want people to talk about me in this way, where it's like, you know, don't worry about that. If, you know, you, you be the person that you want to be, that'll take care of itself. But, you know, you're not here and it's not something that you can control. So there's no point really worrying about it or focusing on it too much. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's a real one we could go deep down the rabbit hole with, I think, um, you know, especially as both being dads and, um, yeah, and sort of going on new, new journeys. And I'm, I'm fascinated by those conversations. So, um, so you come up to sort of 30 years old, you've had this 13-year career, um, and then obviously there's this, this heart scare which leads to effectively retirement. Is, is, is that, that sort of how it unfolded? Yeah, it was all pretty quick. And it was, yeah, so I was 28, um, had played a game the day before um, and then just started to get some, well, I had some, I had an irregular heartbeat um, when I was 16, got scanned for that at Brentford. Um, but was told, you know, this this shouldn't impact your career. We'll keep an eye on it. Um, but I didn't carry on keeping an eye on it. And, and when I, you know, when you get a medical at another club, um, 
you know, I only had it scanned once more after that when I signed for Luton. So I didn't get it scanned probably as regularly as I should have done. Um, but yeah, I had a, an episode of, you know, where I, I got taken to hospital, racing heart and, um, and I was in hospital for, for about 10 days, um, lots of tests and um, lots of specialists I had to go and see. And it got to the, the end of that time. And it was, it was deemed unsafe for me to, to carry on. Um, and I've since had scans and, it, you know, I probably will. And I, I thought I'd already have had it by now, but I probably will need open heart surgery at some point to have a, a valve replacement um, and some work done to my aorta, which is, has been stretched. Um, so I've got two issues in the heart and it was just deemed unsafe for me to, to continue doing what I was doing. Um, so it was, it was a, a you know, out of the blue. Uh, although I knew I had an irregular heartbeat, it was never anything that really worried me or that I thought about. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was at the age of 28 and it was a, yeah, as I say, a, a bit of a, a whirlwind of a time because my, <clears throat> my wife was eight months pregnant at the time. So we were just expecting uh, our daughter. I was living in Wales, away from all family. And then was really anxious about what I was going to do next and um, because football had been all I'd ever done so it was a really difficult and confusing time um, and yeah that's probably where again alcohol played a, a bigger part than maybe I'd hoped it would in in a positive way or negative way well it was just it was something that I used um, to get me through it and um, the whole time that I drank I'd never really drank at home um, but it, it, you know, I didn't have training the next day, so I could have a beer <clears throat> or two beers, three beers, um, and not have to worry about performing the next day. Um, and I also found it was, you know, that that chatterbox in your head or that that inner critic that's going wild when you're sat down on, on your own. Maybe when I had a few beers, it sort of switched that off. So again, it was like an association. Alcohol can do this. Mm. It can take me out of this overthinking, over-worrying stage. Um and it became, instead of two or three beers, it became five or six. Right. And that's when it started to sort of, yeah, creep up on me a little bit. Yeah. And you're, I mean, how did your world feel? I mean, you've, you know, it's, you've, you've been, you've picked a ball up at three years old. You're, you're in Chelsea youth at nine. Um, I mean, 28, it's, well, you could debate what, what is the peak age, but it's, it's there or thereabouts, isn't it, for... You know, for you know, for a footballer, um, you know, what sort of, what does your world then like look like? Um, yeah, there was a little bit of that, probably feeling sorry for myself a little bit and a bit angry um, because it, I got to a stage where I was quite a nervous young player, and I got to a stage where I was captain of the club, um, like a senior figure. I felt really comfortable in my own skin. Um, so I felt like I was I was at probably the, the best part of my career. It took me a long time to sort of build that up. Um, and then it was sort of gone. Uh, but I had to sort of quickly, well, I wanted to quickly shift it to go, you know what, this could have happened when I was 16. I might never have had a career. Um, I might have been told at that scan that you can't carry on playing. So I've got to look at it the positive way. Um, I've had a 13-year professional career. Um, I've, I've come out of it relatively healthy. You know, I've not got any... Um, you know, I've not got any symptoms after that. I'm not, you know, struggling to breathe or I've not got to have any immediate operation when I first came out. So I'm, I'm now I'm 28. So yeah, hopefully I'd have played for another six or seven years, maybe even longer, but 
I've had a career. Um, I've got a daughter on the way, so that was like a straight focus. But I did start to, I had, I had a little bit of like a loss of identity. I'd always mm. associated myself as a footballer, <clears throat> always had a certain structure, the whole week built up to a Saturday, a game day, but the food that I ate, the, the lifestyle that I had, everything was tailored towards football. Um, told where to be, when to be, what to do. So I had that structure and instruction my whole life that was taken away. So that was difficult. Um, but the alcohol side just, just didn't, it made me feel terrible because I started lying to my wife about how much I was drinking. Wow. Um, because if I had four, three or four beers, you know, maybe wouldn't get any comments, but if I went for, to have another one out of the fridge or she kept seeing me do it, it was like, why do you need another one? And it was like a little nagging voice. So I was like, right, I'll let her think that I'm having two beers. When she goes to bed, I'll get that one out or I'll tip, pour this one in a glass while she's not looking and the next morning take the empties to a different bin. And once you start doing those little lies and those little white lies, it just didn't sit right with me. Yeah. So when I'm looking at myself in the mirror or I'm thinking about myself, it was like, what has happened to you? What are you doing? And, you know, yeah. Yeah. what are you? this ain't the husband or the dad that you want to be. And, you know, you're not training and your body's going and all those, you start really hating yourself almost. And that's the sort of spiral that it took me down initially and, and probably did for a good year. And although I'd actually started to find my feet and, and, you know, find a different career path and still work within football, I still had, you know, it was, it was you know, people looked from the outside and thought, oh, he's doing really well. But inside I was like, I hate, you know, I hate myself. At the yeah. I don't know what yeah. I've become. So there was a lot of that going on for sure. Yeah, and which I'm assuming then leads up to the decision to to quit based on it sounds like you've yeah, there's that little bit of spiralling. Um, but on a positive note, you're aware of it, you're sort of reframing it, which is, you know, reframing that you've had a career, um, you can move on, which which I think's massively powerful because I always, you know, one of the things I've learned through working with Andy and, and then going on my own self-development journey is that you've got this, you've got this choice, right? You've got this space between what happens and, and how you respond. And I think that what happens in that middle is, is, is really important. Um, you know, um, Viktor Frankl talks about that in, in Man's Search for Meaning. It's like, yeah, you've always got this stimulus. You've always got this choice. Um, and how you reframe reframe things and I've had to do that um, a lot on my journey so you know you lead up to then the decision to quit alcohol was how, how did that come about um so I still had that thing in me that I never really wanted to drink in the first place so that was like yeah. always in my head um but yeah I, I I remember probably after about a year of retirement just you know little signs like you, I was googling things like about stopping alcohol. I didn't know, I don't really remember how I did it, but it was like, you know, looking at people that were maybe sober or typing in, you know, what is an alcoholic or do I have an alcohol problem or whatever it might be. And I didn't fit their criteria. So, you know, I could go weeks without it. I could, you know, I wasn't drinking in the morning, but sometimes when I did drink, I didn't want it to stop. I missed like the camaraderie of the changing room. So if I went out with friends, it was like, right, this is my time. Like, yeah. let's all let's all drink and let's all stay out as long as we can and and then I would end up doing stupid things like I was never like an aggressive drunk or I was like just a really friendly 
silly kind of drunk but i'd get lost on the way home i'd lose my phone my keys and i'd need picking up from somewhere i'd get myself into really actually looking back some really dangerous situations like trying to get home and walking down you know i remember i used to run home quite a lot from stations you're running down you're running around like country roads and if a car comes around the corner like you're putting yourself in quite dangerous situations at times um but I remember like wanting to stop, but I, I had an image in my head of me and my wife of like being older and having kids and being that cool couple that, you know, everyone comes around and they're like, they're, they're drink at your house and you're sat there with the kids and you're on holiday. And, and I just had this weird alcohol was in those visions that I had in my future, or it was like having a barbecue and having people around the house with a beer and, just alcohol played a, a part in that. So I was like, right, I don't want to drink like I'm drinking, but I don't really want to stop. So I was trying to sort of figure that out. Um, and I remember I had, so I started to talk to people and I'd stopped drinking. I was like, I remember I've sort of had a few moments where I was like, right, this is me done now um, and stopped drinking. And then I said to my wife, right, I'm going to have like a two drink rule. Um, so when we went out, I could have a drink when we went to a restaurant or a bar, or it could give me that couple of drinks I maybe needed for confidence if I went to a party or whatever it was, but then I could step back and, and stop it. And I kept that up for probably a few weeks. And then, um, after that, I had one night out with friends where I got paralytic, you know, mm-hmm. lost my, fell over, embarrassed myself, probably said stupid things. And it was the next morning, um, you know, I'm sorry, previously to that, I'd actually had an argument with my wife. She'd come upstairs and I'd gone to sleep. She woke me up and I got in front of my chest. I said, look, I'm drinking much more than I want to be. I've been hiding alcohol from you. I feel like I've got an issue, that kind of thing. Um, that's when I implemented the two drink rule. Um, but as I said, I had that one day where I went off, you know, off the rails a little bit. Um, but the next morning, just seeing the disappointment on my wife's face. Um, you know, she was like, you told me that, you know, you weren't going to do this anymore. Um, I'd woken her up when I got in and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it was the next morning I felt so sort of ashamed and embarrassed um, that I'd come across a podcast and it was um, an ex-cricketer. I'd come across it purely by chance. Um, I was looking into the world of like sports agents. I typed in on Google, uh, on Amazon, sorry, agent books and his one came up he was a, a an agent that worked within sport so i ordered his book it was like how to be an agent or something like that i can't remember it, the title um and that had come in the morning and i remember going to a game uh because i work as a, a, a scout for a football club as well i had a drive the next morning i took the book with me put it on the passenger seat and i had like an hour and a half drive and i was like who is this author so i typed his name in put it into apple podcasts First one that came up, Luke Sutton, so I clicked on it and thought he would be talking about, you know, what it was like being an agent, but it was completely different. It was about his life story. And when I say he he literally ticked every single box of what I was going through in terms of how he was as a kid, how he was in his career, his career coming to an end, various sort of personality traits and traumas. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was 10 years alcohol-free and it just all resonated with me. It all clicked into place. And it was like, right, I cannot, 
I need to cut this out of my life. There needs to be no gray area of maybe drinking here, maybe not drinking there. If I can cut it out altogether and not even think about going for a drink, then, you know, I want to do that. So it was listening to that podcast um, that, that really did click in my head. It was like, what are you doing? This isn't you. It's never been you. Let's try and get this confidence without it. Let's try and deal with these hard moments without it. Let's try and be the best dad that you can be. My daughter would have been coming up to two years old it's like right if you do it now she'll never ever know you as being drunk or falling over or embarrassing yourself or letting her down so that was a massive thing for me um so i tried it and yeah that was the that was the last time that that i touched a drink and um put me on this on this journey really really powerful yeah i think there's always that that pivotal moment or that that inspiration that we we find and it generally come it can come from another person can't it i think that's the that's the uh, the, the ability to look at someone and think do you know what you know if i can sort of just take what they're doing because it seems to work and it i know we talked before we 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 recorded about andy's journey and and how that sort of you know we took inspiration from that and i i i think i think that's really really powerful yeah, and I don't know what it is about podcasts, but it does feel like a like a safe space to have like a long form conversation that you maybe wouldn't have anywhere else. Um, and that's why I think they've been so powerful. And I think sometimes you're whether you're in denial or you can't quite articulate it yourself or you can't quite pinpoint something, but just letting someone else almost do it for you is mm-hmm. just magic for me. It's like he was articulating what I was trying to. I was trying to battle something in my head and get it out. And he almost said it for me. Yeah. And um, I think that's when when someone resonates. And I'm, I'm so fortunate that I've been able to, especially when I went onto, onto the radio and spoke about this, but I then had people going, you know what, I'm not going to touch a drink now because, or I'm going to get help now because that's exactly what I was doing or I was hiding it from a wife or I was using it in this situation. Um and I just think that sometimes you need someone else to almost say it for you. Um, and that's why, that's why these are, you know, I want to do as many of these as I can. And I want to, I want to, you know, do my own podcast one day because I know just how powerful those stories can be. And I know that that one single episode or one single comment can be, you know, a game changer or a lifesaver for, for someone. Yeah. And I think, yeah, exactly. And also, because when it happens to you, you then realise the power of that. And then I think you put yourself in a position where you say, you know, if I could only help one person, if I could get my story across. And, you know, um, we, we talked before where obviously you're in a position now where you've you've gone on to be this elite player, care and, and, and well-being. And, you know, you've moved into this sort of alcohol-free advocate um for me it was you know recently i got a text message on on the book that i wrote and then i've got a couple of messages coming through my linkedin dms where people are like i absolutely resonate with what you're saying there it happened to me um you know and um i went through those exact feelings that you wrote about in your book and i think when when that happens it's just powerful beyond belief and then obviously you know that's uh that's i think that really spearheads then to you to go on and sort of 
you know lead that lead that drive of drive of change which um which is which is effectively what you're doing so so then you you go on to just well, let's touch on this elite player care and, and and well-being obviously i i see you on instagram it feels like you're at every club in in um in in the uk what's what was what's what's all going on there um, so yeah, I, when I came out of football, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, I went back into Chelsea, actually. And it's, it's something that I, I talk to a lot of young people about now. If you are, if you do have a good attitude and you work hard and you listen to people and you build those relationships, those clubs and those people will want to help you when you need it. Um, so I, you know, I came through Chelsea and left a good impression. Um, although I wasn't the most talented and was never going to play for their first team, some of the staff members are still there um, and they wanted to help me. So when I came out of retirement, uh, when I um, retired from football, I went back in there. They put me in touch with various people. One of them was a sports lawyer. Um, and we just started talking and connected and, and we built a business where we go in and we do education packages for football clubs. We support their, we support players, we support staff members and we do a lot in terms of players that they bring in. We look into um, player history and background and put together sort of packages to try and find out what the human being's like. Um, and we've we've really branched out in the last couple of years and brought people in and, and worked in various sports and different areas. But I've got a real passion for helping, um, you know, young athletes. I know how difficult um, the journey is mm. and... Although, you know, and alcohol is something that I've started to touch on quite a lot in these sessions, it, it was an escape for me. And it's an escape, and, and sorry, escapes come in different forms for a lot of other players. So when they have that build-up of pressure or a difficult time, it might be gambling <clears throat> that they go into. It might be sex. It might be drugs. Mm. It might be um, gaming, things like that. It might be social media. It might be all these kind of things, spending and it's like a similar pattern to what I was going through. It's like, right, what can take me out of my own headspace at the minute? What can make all this, all my issues go away in the short term? And it's just, it's just almost like an epidemic in, in professional sport that, and it might be, it might be food. That's another one. Eating disorders are huge. Um, but yeah, it's something that I, I'm really passionate about. Um, so I try and help as, as many players and staff members as I can do um, and that still keeps me involved in sport and then on the other side there's there's plenty that I want to do going forward in the alcohol free space yeah and obviously I've seen the um, the alcohol change UK um, that you're that you're working on um, I donated over over the weekend oh, thank you no it was it was really powerful and um, hopefully you know we can get a few more people to to sort of look at that concept and and, and donate because I think it's it, it's it's such a good cause so um, I think let's uh, if you just want to touch on that Fraser and then um, and then really um, what does the future sort of look like at the moment for you yeah, I think firstly with, with our cold change UK, it's like there is that almost this was never the plan, like as probably the same as you, like never the plan to almost go into this world of alcohol free. Um, so when I stopped drinking, it was like I remember specifically saying to my mum and my wife, like this goes nowhere, like don't tell anyone. Um, I don't want to tell anyone that I'm not drinking or anything like that. Yeah. Um, and then it was going on to talk sport and opening up about it. And the response I got was like, right, maybe, maybe I do need to, you know, share some of this because this could help people. 
And it just became like a real passion and purpose that I'd, I'd lost from playing football. And I found it in this world. Um, but it was never the plan. And it got to a point where I was like, I want to help. I want to give back. I want to do something. And, you know, got in contact with Alcohol Change UK and was like, right, if I can raise awareness or raise money or be associated with this charity, go in and do talks on their behalf and talk to businesses and, and just try and get a wider reach of people that I can maybe speak to. Um, then I wanted to be a part of that. Um, I want to educate myself from, you know, Andy Ramage's course and other courses that I'm doing along the way to try and, you know, develop myself, to put myself in the best position to help people, whether that's one-to-one, whether it's putting on a course, whatever it might be, just trying to understand. And, and do you know what? It's become a massive passion. I actually really enjoy even the scientific side of reading about alcohol and listening to it on podcasts and listening to other people's stories and just found a huge purpose that's sort of within this world. Um, and then going forward, I think I've always been fearful of uncertainty and not having like a real clear plan, but actually being quite comfortable with actually not knowing 100% what the future holds. Um, I've got lots of ideas at the minute, um, lots that I'm thinking about doing, lots that I probably need to, you know, put my foot down and, and take action with. Um, but I'm quite content at the minute. You know, I'm, I'm doing a lot within football. I'm doing a lot within the alcohol free world. Um, I've got a good balance with my family. So, you know, I need to weigh all of that up and see what's best and what's right. But I want to help as many people as I can. I want to take on clients and help people one-to-one. I want to go in and, and talk more, whether it's at a football club, whether it's at a business, I want to go in and sort of raise awareness on alcohol and challenge things, challenge the way we advertise it and the way we condition people with it. Um, probably so that other people that get to the age of 17 that don't want to drink, don't have to drink to gain confidence. Maybe it's like, right, what can we do to practice these situations so that you don't need alcohol that you do feel that you are enough without a drink so it's a you know it's a it's one of those things it's an infinite goal you're never going to complete it but you know with with people like yourself and many other brilliant people that I've met sort of in this community and that's what it is it's a real community yes, um you know if there's if, if we're all trying to help in the right way and and raise awareness and help people then you know slowly we will start to make a, a big impact and a big ripple yeah and i think one of the things you said there that's that that's really really powerful and resonates is the word content i think if you're if you're in a sort of content space with the road you're walking and the journey you're you're going along then you don't have to have it all figured out because you're content it's when you're not content and you're you know banging square pegs in round holes and you're kind of you know filled with fear and worry and all this kind of negative emotions that things can then start to sort of you know not quite go the way you want them to but I think if you're in that content space and you're happy with that you know what I don't have it all figured out I don't know where it's going but what I do know is that I feel like I'm on the right path I think that's where the power really really lies so um, yeah and and don't get me wrong you get you do get the odd day that pops up where you do have all that and you do have that oh, what am I doing? I'm overthinking and I'm down and I'm this and I've not done that and you beat yourself up a bit. But I'd say overall, there's more of that content yeah. feeling and I've, and I've tried to, and I'm still trying, like we, we spoke briefly about Buddhism and just trying to pick things up 
that can maybe help me when I'm feeling like that or little mechanisms I can put in place to bring me back to, you know, that feeling. But yeah, the, the you know, not every single day is going to be rosy and sunshining, but hopefully, well, I know that at the minute there's, there's more of those than, than not. So yeah, that's, that's why I feel that that word content is, is a big one. Brilliant Fraser. I think that's a great place to start to wrap this up. We're just touching over that hour. So, um, um thank you i thought that was super super powerful and thanks for sharing um your your journey your transformation your innermost thoughts and feelings on some of these points i think that's really really powerful and um i'm hoping that people will get a lot from a uh, lot from listening to uh to, to our time together um just before we go fraser is there where, where can people find you um my probably the platform i use most is instagram so just at fraser franks on that um and then i I, again like yourself start to use linkedin quite a bit at the minute yeah and so those are probably the two platforms i use the most yeah brilliant mate okay and just before we go if there's somebody sort of listening again i know it's a it's a sort of cliche but if there's somebody listening that you you know they're kind of really resonating with your story and there's there's that little bit of advice that you want to sort of just just sort of leave them with um whether it's alcohol free whether it's you know thinking about high performance whether it's you know all, all the stuff we talked around around legacy is there any sort of uh, passing passing words um i'll probably just put myself back into those shoes where i said that podcast i listened to mm. you know was the the turning point in my life that I think when you do listen to something like this, if you've got like a little internal voice or a little gut feeling, that's like, that was me or I felt like that. And maybe I need to do this is to, is to listen to that because that's usually, you know, from my experience, it's usually right. If you've got something inside you, it's like, you know what, I do want to change this, but I just don't see a world without it. You know, hopefully we're we're gonna we're gonna open people's eyes up to you know what there is a world about it, a much better one. And you know, all those those fantasy visions that I had of my future of beer and wine involved in them, you know, you can have those exact things, those barbecues in the gardens, the holidays, and they can be even better um, you know, without the alcohol. So, you know, it's uh, it's listening to that internal voice, I'd say is is the big one for me. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant, Fraser. I'm excited for the next part of your journey. I know we're going to be connecting again in sort of different ways. So, um, yeah, looking forward to the future. And uh, and thanks so much for coming on. Oh, brilliant. Thank you, Justin.